Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Matt Swain, so without further ado, here he is. To John chapter 1 in your Bibles. Over the past several weeks we've been talking about reaching out. Two weeks ago we uh, looked into the nature of God. God is a missionary God. We looked, we jumped back in time about 4,000 years and looked to Abraham when God said, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. God's vision was inclusive of all the nations. And then we jumped forward in time to the end of time where John looked out on a sea of people worshiping God and he saw people from every tribe, tongue, nation. So God's is a missionary God. God's heart is for all peoples to worship him. Last week we looked at what it means to be a kingdom of priests. That God's dream and his desire for his people is that we live as priests in our daily lives. It's not something that's reserved for a special group of people, but that all of us who follow Christ are called to be a kingdom of priests. My, my kids have this uh, book that I like to, I'll say read to them at night. It's not really reading because there's no words involved. It's a... Uh, it's a picture book, and the characters have a kind of a, a Waldo-esque look to them. And I just want to describe this story to you. The first page, what you do, you open it up, and you see this town. The whole town is in black and white, and it's night, and the sky is kind of a purple color. And there's this lone man walking into the town, and he's colored. He's the only color on the whole page. And as he's starting to walk into town, you're like, hmm, this is interesting. So we, we turn to that page and say, look, what do you see? And the kids say, oh, it's a town. The man's coming into town. So we turn the page. The man comes into the middle of the town, <clears throat> and there's a house that says for sale. This house is run down. In the middle of this town, it's all gray. And there's people. You can start to see people in all the windows. You see people. You see an artist, and you see a cat burglar up on the roof, and you see a guy with a broken leg, and you see all these different people and different life stories in the, in the, on this page. And the old man, and the color is still on him. He looks at this house, and he's kind of smiling. And you turn to the next page, and the old man has moved into this broken-down, run-down shack. But no longer is it run down. He's working on it. He has a ladder. He's painted the shutters blue. Suddenly, his little plot of land in the middle of this gray town has color. He's been painting stuff. He's been working stuff. He's been cleaning it up. And he started planting things around the outside. I I love reading through this. And you turn to the next page, and suddenly his house has exploded with color. The tree has has. flowers and is in full bloom the the house is looking really nice and in the front yard there's a row of flowers and the little old man's there and he has a flower and he's he's uh, cultivating his flowers and there's a little girl who is just walking by and she's carrying a flower and she is now full of color as you turn as we turn the pages we each night we just pick one person we watch i, I like watching the cat burglar guy cuz he's the first night he's sneaking into a roof and he's stealing something and then the next day he's he's kind of watching people as they get these flowers and as people get the flowers they all start to turn into color they turn from black and white into color and at one point somebody comes up to the cat burglar guy and gives him a flower and you see in him he's like wow who would th- who would care enough about me to give me a flower 
His whole life changes around, and you end up following this cat burglar through the story. He ends up falling in love with this lady, and, and they're like looking at each other with romantic eyes, and he, oh, it's this beautiful. What happens eventually, it's not just the old man who's handing out flowers, but everyone in the, in the community is passing flowers along to other people. Suddenly the whole page is full of color. The artist who couldn't paint, he has paintings coming out, and you start seeing the paintings from the artist in all the houses and all the buildings around the, around the community. The guy who was stuck in his room with a broken leg, he's out in his wheelchair running down the street and the kids are chasing him. And he's having a blast. This one man moved into the community with an intention of loving others. It's through a simple thing like flowers. It's just a parable. It's just an illustration. But it shows us a beautiful picture of what we're going to talk about today. Turn back to John 1. We're going to read from verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through Him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Today we're going to look into the last verse, John 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. I really, really like the message. If you've never read the message, I recommend you get it. Sometimes it's a paraphrased version of the Bible. It just takes the same Bible we know and it's put into modern-day language. And sometimes Eugene Peterson, when he, when he writes, I think he captures some, and he kind of paints a picture of, of some of the verses that sometimes get lost because we hear them so often. We hear the same verses a lot of times, day in, day out. And sometimes in repetitive hearing, we lose the meaning. But he's translated this verse like this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So let's take a look at some of the words in this verse. The Word. One thing that happens a lot of times when we translate from one language to another is that the essence of the word that's translated gets lost. I I know this from studying Spanish, and I'm sure that any of you who have studied a second or third language realize this too. But one example in Spanish, if, if you say, in English you say, well, I know the answer, or I know you, or I know this. We just have one word for no, for knowledge. We just say no. Do you know it? Uh, I know it. Do you know it for sure? Have you been there? Have you seen it? Do you know it? Yeah, I know it. In Spanish, there's two different words that mean the same thing. Well, actually, they mean two different things. One is saber, which means to have a mental knowledge of something. And the other word is conocer. And that means you know it by experience. So sometimes you'd be talking to somebody and they would say, Hey, do you know Madrid? Now, if you've read about Madrid or if you've studied Madrid, you would say, no, I don't know Madrid. 
Because to know Madrid means that you have been to Madrid and you have physically been there and you, you know that city. So for them, conocer has a, has a much deeper meaning than saber. So there's two levels of knowledge. For us, we, the only way we can do that is to ask, no, do you really know it or have you experienced it? We have to put qualifiers in. But in Spanish, there are two different words that have different meanings. The same thing happens with the word word. The word that we translate word comes from Greek. And it means it's logos. We translate that word logos into word, which is okay. That's appropriate. However, it doesn't capture the full essence of the word logos. So let's take a look at logos. What is logos? Logos extends beyond the idea of word to notions such as thought, speech, account, meaning, reason, principle, and standard. So the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The thought, the speech, the accounts, the meaning, the reason, the principle, the standard, all these characteristics of God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Logos is also the root word of the word logic. So reason, logic, all the, all the things that, that encapsulate the essence of who God is, that is what the word logos means. As I was thinking about this word logos, I, I was starting to think about just language and words. And Do you realize how important language is to who we are? Language is such a fundamental part of our everyday life. It would, I was trying to imagine, like, what would it be like if I could not use words or language to communicate with other people? What would that be like? Language is the thing that distinguishes us from the animal kingdom. Animals may be able to grunt or, or to make symbols or signs or, or things that kind of tell the other animals what, what's happening and kind of move in a certain direction together, but they can't communicate. They can't talk about physics or about HTML or can't talk about theology. They can't talk about things that have deeper levels. They don't have the ability. And imagine without that ability, I wonder, do they even comprehend or even think about those things? Babies are born without language, but by the age of five, most children know several thousand words and have mastered all the rules of language. As humans have a distinct the distinct characteristic in our understanding and knowledge of language. Language connects us or distances us, distances us from people on different levels. Recently, I was talking with a friend of mine who uh, is in graphic design and web design and stuff, and I, I like his work. It's really cool. And I was talking with him about it. I was like, so tell me, you know, like, what is it like? What's your job like? What do you do? He started talking about cascading style sheets and layers and vectors, and I was like, oh, huh. I wonder what's over there on the ceiling. I was totally lost. I didn't know what he was talking about. I was like, oh, that's nice. Okay. Like his language was great, but I I didn't understand it. So through language, he lost me because I didn't understand his language. Lori and I uh, traveled uh, to Budapest. We were headed on to a conference. And uh, it was our first time traveling outside of anywhere other than Spain. And and, uh, we wanted to be, you know, we wanted to be, Adventurous, we decided we'd use the bus uh, and get from the train station to the hotel using the bus system. So I recommend if you ever go to a, another country and you don't know the language, don't use the buses. <laughs> Just get a taxi and say, this is the address, take me there. So uh, 
we got in, we got on our first bus and it was fine and it dropped us down, it took us downtown and we got off on a stop that we thought was the stop we were supposed to get off of and we got out and it wasn't the right stop. And we were stuck in the middle of this, this corner and, uh, we were at this bus stop and we didn't know the number of the next bus we were supposed to get on. We didn't know how to find the bus stop or, we were kind of confused. So we went to the shop that was right there. We, we took it, we took our uh, notes in and we said, this, ho- we need to get to this hotel. And the lady was like, oh. and she said something in, in uh, Hungarian. I didn't understand what she said, but she was like, I don't understand you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and uh, everyone we asked, everyone was confused and no one knew what we were saying, but we were the ones that we were out of place. We didn't have the language. We felt so weak and so helpless and so, it was the, one of the worst feelings you can ever imagine to not be able to communicate or to talk or to have anybody understand what you're saying. So we grabbed our luggage and we just started walking in the direction of where we saw the hotel was on the map. And we walked across the bridge and up a hill and uh, through some, uh, a park. And we finally found it. And I saw this guy from IT and I recognized him. And I was like, hello, Rich. And I gave him the biggest hug I've ever given anyone. And he was probably like, hey, hi, hey, how are you? Welcome. But... You know, it was so wonderful to meet somebody who I understood and I knew understood me. But that feeling of not having language or not being able to connect with other people is, is a very disconcerting feeling. Language is deeply connected with our identity. You may not realize this um, in, in normal everyday life, but one of the most humiliating things living in another country was not being able to express yourself fully. I remember this, it seems like the post office was the place that happened the most often. I, I don't know why. They, it seemed like they were out to get us or something, but we'd go in and I'd have a note that said I was supposed to get a package and every time they could find something wrong, oh, you need your passport, oh, you need this identification card, oh, it was in both people's names, so I need both people here to sign for it. And, you know, I was so frustrated because I couldn't express myself and I couldn't even tell them I was frustrated. And, and one time I even remember I was trying to say, you know, like, this is not fair, you're taking advantage of us or something. And I said, this is a tree trunk! And I ran out. And later I was like, Oh, that wasn't what I wanted to say. But, you know, language, I remember so many times thinking, I'm a smart person. Now, please treat me like a smart person. But, you know, how you come across in another language makes people treat you differently than than you may want to be treated. Language is deeply rooted in our identity. Language gives us the ability to communicate and explain ourselves with others. And the ability to wield language well gives us power, for better or for worse. Uh, When you're in a place where you know the language, you can use language to your advantage. When you're in a place where you don't have language, you you are very weak and you are vulnerable. If you, if you don't believe me, just think about lawyers. Their whole job is using words, and, 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 the, and the way that they use words and wield words has a very significant outcome in, in, the, in the course of a court case or in making of laws or in judgments. Language is a very powerful thing. So in John's day, when John said, the word became flesh and blood, a very common understanding of the word was the Hebrew Bible. And there's some interesting things if you look into the Hebrew Bible, if you, as you look into the Bible, when it talks about or describes the Word of God. The Word of God very closely parallels the essence of God. Here are some descriptions of the Word of God. And think about them. Are these descriptions different 
from God himself. The word of God is good. The word of God is holy. The word of God is complete. The word of God is flawless. The word of God is sure. The word of God is all-sufficient. The word of God is right. The word of God is true. The word of God is understandable. The word of God is active. The word of God is all-powerful. The word of God is indestructible. The word of God is supreme. The word of God is eternal. The word of God is life-giving. The word of God is wise. The word of God is trustworthy. Torah is another description of the Hebrew Bible. It's a, it's a part of the laws. It was regarded in Jesus' day as the living presence of God's word. There was a rabbinic saying that demonstrates Jewish, under, Jewish understanding of the Torah. Listen closely to the saying. Where two sit together and words of the law are spoken between them, the Shekinah rests between them. Hmm, does that sound familiar? Jesus said, where two or three gather in my name, there I am in the midst. You see, in Jewish context, the Shekinah, the, the Torah was the living presence of God. It wasn't just words about God. It was God's very presence in their midst. So when Jesus said, where two or three gather in my name, I am in their midst. He simultaneously did two things. He embodies the Torah. He says, you have the Torah. I say, I am the Torah. And he embodies the temple. You say that in order to connect with God, you must be in this special place. I say, it is no longer in this special place. The two great manifestations of God for the Jews are opened up to the world through Jesus. He does not abolish these Old Testament markers, but these markers point to him and he fulfills them completely. The word became flesh and blood and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Became flesh and blood. I, I really like this uh, in Latin or in Spanish. I mean, the word is se hizo carne. Carne in Spanish means meat. The word became meat. Sometimes flesh is too too nice sounding, but meat, I don't know. When you picture meat, you know, I picture walking past the butcher. You're walking past, like, you know, I mean, meat. The word, the essence of God, the very character of God, in all of his glory, came and put on a meat suit. I mean, what that is... Incredible, the, the humility that that must have taken. The word that is normally used to describe this is incarnation. It just means that word became flesh, meat, carne. Jesus' story is the greatest missionary story that ever existed in the history of the world. Think about it. He made the greatest cross-cultural leap in the history of, the, of humanity. Jesus left behind the glory of God. He left his homeland, everything that was comfortable. Jesus set aside his holy nature. He set aside his culture. He set aside his, his right to, to, to sit at the right hand of God. He humbled himself and took on a body of flesh. He dressed up in a way that his hearers could recognize and hear his voice. Jesus lived his life with intention and purpose. He was not a minister on accident. 
This was his very purpose in life, was to live a life of ministry. He became culturally human, but never rejected or lived contrary to the word of God. He lived in the world, but was not of the world. He became fully human, accepting all the limitations that we face. He became like those around him so that he could identify with them and vice versa. Jesus had to eat food. Jesus had to sleep. He had to relieve himself. Jesus had to work. Ultimately, Jesus had to die, and he died in one of the worst ways possible. And Jesus calls us to take up our crosses as well. Dwelt among us. The word became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. The word dwelt literally means tabernacled among us. We have no idea what that means. Tabernacles, we don't have them. We don't use them. We don't really know what that means. Tabernacled means he set up his tent with us. But even that doesn't really capture what tabernacled means. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites fled from Egypt and they were in the desert, God had them do something very special. He had them divide into to their, their, to their different tribes. Three tribes had to camp on the north side. Three tribes camped on the south. Three tribes on the east. Three tribes on the west. So they had order to their camp. And in the middle of this camp, right in the middle, they set up a special tabernacle. Over this tabernacle was a huge pillar. And, and by day it was a pillar of cloud, and by night it was a pillar of fire. So in the middle of this entire camp, the people camped around where God tabernacled, where God's dwelling rested. When In the morning when they woke up, if the cloud was moving, everyone packed up, and they'd follow God. And when it's, whenever the pillar sat down, they'd put the tabernacle right there where the cloud was, and everyone would set up camp around them. That was God's way in the Old Testament of dwelling among his people. The only problem was it was still set up in the tabernacle system where everyone was there in his presence. However, there was still a lot, of, a lot of barriers. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies where the cloud rested. But this was pointing to God's ultimate dream and his ultimate desire to dwell among his people. So Jesus comes, when he puts on this flesh and lives in the world, he fulfills God's dream of dwelling among God's people. Jesus becomes the light and glory which dwells among humanity. Jesus becomes the embodiment of God's thought, speech, account, meaning, reason, principle, standard, and logic. Do you get that? The very essence of God... The very thoughts of God, the very dreams and hopes and everything that God means is rolled up and packed into this body of Jesus, into this person of Jesus. Jesus brings the word. Jesus brings the character of God to the people in the world. Jesus not only tells us how to live our lives, but he demonstrates it. He shows us how to live. And through Jesus' life, He revealed God's glory, the Shekinah of God. Just as God's glory was revealed in the Old Testament through that pillar, imagine what that would be like getting up in the morning and walking outside. and Wow, there's a pillar of cloud. You're you're collecting your manna. I mean, you're going to feel that. You're going to sense that. It's going to affect the way you live your daily life. I would think. I would hope. Jesus reveals that glory in a very personal, a very close way to those who walk with him. 
In the Bible, we are called repeatedly. Jesus says repeatedly, come, follow me. That is the call of the disciple. Follow me. We call ourselves Christians. Christian merely means little Christ. This originally came out of, the, in, in Acts, the, uh, the first disciples and the first Christians, they weren't really called Christians. They called themselves followers of the way. They did such a good job representing Christ and acting and living like Him. The people that didn't like Christ tried to use it as a derogatory term. They said, oh, you just are a little Christ. They were like, didn't like them. They were like trying to be mean to them and just, oh, you're little Jesuses. And you know what? They were like, wow, thank you. That's awesome. And that's where the name Christian came from. It was originally meant to cause harm, but they were like, that is a beautiful thing. We must be doing something right. People see Christ in us. Even, even when they're trying to hurt us, they see Christ in us. And they took it on. So the, the Christians who are followers of the way of Christ took on his very name. So here's the question. The word became flesh and blood and dwelt among us, moved into the neighborhood. What are some ways that we can follow Christ's example? Well, first of all, a little Christ should be the embodiment of the word logos. That is, we should be living representatives of the words, the essence, the thought, all that it means to be God. How do we do that? We have to know it. We have to understand it. We have to study God's word. We have to look into it. We have to look into the person of Jesus. Who was Jesus? How did he live his life? If we don't know who God is, if we don't know Jesus, there is no way that we can embody him or his thoughts or his words or his essence in our lives. Does that make sense? The life of a Christ follower will reflect the thoughts and dreams of God. A little Christ should be willing to leave your world behind in order to follow Christ. You know what? Sometimes a little Christ should be willing to stay exactly where they are also. But a little Christ is willing to give up comfort, willing to give up what he thinks or she thinks is better and follow Christ where Christ leads. Uh, The verse, go into all the world and make disciples, can also be translated as you are going. So wherever we are in our lives, we need to take pause and look and see where is it that Christ is leading us? In, in our daily lives, what is it that he's calling us to? Maybe, for some of us, he is literally calling you to go somewhere. If that's the case, listen up and follow him. A good little Christ strives to be a representation of the good news in their culture. You know, as a missionary, if you go to another country, you you try to find ways that you can represent Christ. You want to be an ambassador. You want to reflect Him and His glory in that country. And you want to try the best that you can not to do anything that would inhibit God or, or somehow taint His name. It's the same for us even if we're not missionaries. Even if we go through our daily lives every day doing the same thing we've done for the past decade, 
We need to live our lives in such a way that we represent Christ to the culture that we live in, in a way that they can understand it. A little Christ lives an intentional life. Jesus lived his life on purpose. It was not accident that happened. He did not get stuck in the daily mantras of, of going and coming and, and forget of what, who he was or what he was about. Everything he did was imbued with purpose. A little Christ becomes a student of the language and the culture around you. You know, one thing that uh, is very common among missionaries or people that go to other countries to, to become uh, cross-cultural ministry workers is that when they get to that other country, they find other expatriates, other people that aren't from the country that they're in, and it's so easy to connect with them because all of you have something in common in that you're not from that first culture. So one thing that happens is a lot of times missionaries get stuck uh, in culture, in communities in this other country that have nothing to do with the other country. I think that that sometimes is a parallel of us in the church. We get very comfortable connecting with other people that we know that are in the same culture as us or not part of the first culture that we're in. But we are called to leave our comfort, to leave our culture, and to go headfirst into that that foreign culture, even though it's not comfortable and it's not easy. We're not called to come and hang out with all the expats. Although there are times where we can do that and it's fun, that's not what we're called to. Little Christ dress and speak to the culture in a way that it can understand us. There's a story of Hudson Taylor when he first moved to China. He was, a, he was one of the early missionary fathers uh, in the new missionary movement. And when he first went to China, they said he was standing up on the middle of the street. He was standing up on this box and he was preaching the gospel. And they had a translator who was translating what he was saying. And, and he was preaching and preaching and preaching. And, and, and there was this kind of crowd around him. And he was like, he said through his translator, are there any questions? Does anyone have any questions here? And the translator asked, and one guy raised his hand. He said, yeah. He said, I have a question. He said, what's that little button do in the back of your jacket? You see, in that time, their coattails, they wore this. He was an Englishman. He wore this huge, uh, it looks like a tuxedo kind of jacket. And in the middle, they had this button. It was a decorative button. It didn't do anything. It was decorative. It just looked pretty. It was part of the fashion. But in that point, Hudson Taylor realized that his fashion, the way he, the way he dressed, the way he, the way he looked, was inhibiting the gospel message being, being put out. So what he did was he stopped wearing English fashions. He switched to Chinese fashion. He started wearing the, the typical Chinese garb, and he grew his hair long and dyed it black and grew a long mustache. And then when he spoke the gospel, people weren't distracted by how he looked, and they were able to connect with him. Now, that may look different in different ways. Basically, it's saying, what is it that's distracting people from hearing the gospel in our lives? It may not be clothes. It may not be a simple matter of how we dress or, or how we decorate things or something like that. It's something that's deeper. But what is it that in our lives are inhibiting people from seeing the gospel in our lives? What are those things? If there are things that we can change that would, that would help people to connect better with God, and it doesn't... It's not contrary to the will of God. Let's do those things. But if it's contrary to the will of God, then don't do it. If that separates us from culture, oh well. A good missionary or a good little Christ will be in the world, but not of the world. In the midst 
of speaking to a foreign culture, speaking to a world that is not our own, we must be cautious not to get caught up in that world. I read the story recently of a missionary who was a linguist. Um, and I, it wasn't in a Christian magazine. It was in a, it was in a, a magazine on language. Um, and he had, uh, he had moved to the Amazon. He found this very remote tribe. And he started learning things about their language and their culture. He, he lived there so long. And he was so uh, wrapped up in their culture that he eventually lost his faith. And wrote off Christianity entirely. I think his problem or his error was that he bought in too much to the culture that was there. And he didn't recognize God's power and God's overarching uh, work over culture. We must ask God to open our eyes to areas of blindness in our lives. A little Christ identifies with and loves the people he or she is ministering to. This may not be something that comes natural to us at first. When we're first in, even in our neighborhoods, you may not have a love for your neighbors. You may not really even like them. Pray that God will change your heart and act as though you do. We need to live in a loving way. A lot of times when people move to another culture, another place, they don't really love the people right away. They find a lot of things annoying in the new culture. Pray that God will change your heart, because he will. A little Christ lays down their lives for the people around them. Now, this comes across as like, whoa, that's huge. Are you saying I have to die in order to become a Christian or to become, just, to, just to live out my Christian faith? Yes. However, we may have to die every single day. Sometimes we think of dying as, as a, the sacrificing, this huge sacrifice. And it is a huge sacrifice, but it's a daily sacrifice. Basically, it's denying ourselves each day, following Christ, where he leads us. This sacrifice may be in the, in the sense of serving someone. If you see someone on the side of the road, you're late for a meeting, they have a flat tire. What do you do? Dying to yourself would be you stop. And even though it may be painful to you or maybe, maybe it may hurt your day, you stop and you sacrifice that is dying to yourself and serving somebody else. Uh, last week, Lori and I watched this uh, Extreme Home Makeover. I don't know if you ever watch it. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Uh, but they, showed this, they highlighted this couple who moved from Colorado, the mountains of Colorado, uh, to Albuquerque, New Mexico. When the time they moved to New Mexico, it had the worst crime rate per capita in the United States. That has to be pretty bad. They moved into the worst and darkest part of this neighborhood, and they started loving people. They started handing out food and hanging out with prostitutes and drug dealers. In five years, the crime rate in that town dropped 50%. When I was thinking about incarnation, I was thinking about people like you know Mother Teresa or people like that, but I was like, you know, that's really nice, but I, I, Mother Teresa seems very out there. I don't think I could even connect with Mother Teresa. I'd like to, but wow, that's hard. This is a normal family. Nothing different about them. They did not have any huge economic means. They did not have anything, any special talents that stuck out. They did not have anything other than obedience. They were Christians and they heard Christ saying, I want you to move to this dark place and live a Christian life there. And that's what they did. And the crime rate fell 50%. Everyone in that neighborhood says, we are so thankful for the Menendez family. 
They have helped transform this community and this society and bring life back where there was no hope and there was no life. God may be calling some of us to move and God may be calling others to be present where we are. My question is, have you truly moved into your neighborhood? Do you truly dwell and embody the word of God where you live and where you work? Do people see you and sense there's something very different about you in the way that you live, in the way that you walk, in the way that you conduct yourself? We had a span, uh, we had several summer teams come and visit us in the summer. And one year this, this girl came and every day we, we were like, you need to spend time with people. You need to connect with people. It's all about connecting with people. And every day she'd go out and she would sit with Spaniards and have coffees and talk about faith and her life and God. And at the end of the, at the end of the six weeks she was there, she was like, you know, I can't believe this. She's like, I have so many friends back home and I've never once invited them out to a coffee. I've never once invited them to come and just talk with them and just share my life with them. And so she went back and she set aside a certain amount of her money every month to take people out to coffee just to hang out and just to talk and share her faith with them. Imagine what it would be like if in Harvest Community Church we started living our lives, carrying out the call to become the word made flesh in our neighborhoods and in our community. What would it look like when a church of 200 people lived their life on purpose for Christ in the northwest suburbs of Chicago? What would that look like? What would happen if God's people truly grasped his heart to reach all people groups? And what would happen if everyone who called himself or herself a Christian truly lived their life as ministry? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love us and you care about us so much that you came to this earth. You took on a human body in order to love us and demonstrate how great your love was for us. Lord, I pray that you will impress upon us so deeply and and so passionately your love for us that we can't help but live our lives and share that love with others. That we can't help but dwell and live and move into our neighborhoods and be part of our communities and love the people around us. Lord, I pray that when people think of our church, that they will see us and know us and know that we care and that we love this community so deeply and that that love only comes from you. Father, we pray that uh, our church will embody what it means to to be incarnated here, to be your your word made flesh in this in this community. Lord, we just pray that you will guide us and lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.